Hey there, welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations about food and farming. I'm Jonathan Kilpatrick, Farmer Education Director at the Sustainable Farming Association. Today, my guest is Dan Kittredge. Dan is an organic farmer, the executive director of the Bionutrient Food Association, and a leading proponent of nutrient density in our food supply. Dan will be the instructor for a two-day workshop at the end of January that SFA is co-hosting with the Bionutrient Food Association. We'll dive into that a little later in the episode. For now, Dan, thanks for joining me today and welcome to Dirt Rich. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're really excited about the opportunity to co-host a uh, workshop that we're calling the Principles of Biological Systems. And uh, towards the end of January, we're going to be doing that with you in the Bionutrient Food Association. Um, Before we dive a little bit more into the workshop and some of those things, I want our listeners to be able to get a feel for who you are, uh, your background, your organic farming knowledge and everything. So start us at the beginning, uh, growing up on the farm with your parents. All right. Well, my parents uh, were sort of back to the land homesteaders. They bought a piece of property in 80 in central Massachusetts, 81. Um, built their house passive solar uh, not not off grid but um root solar and all the heat and hot water and cooking was on a wood stove we had a milk cow and various animals you know put away food for the winter didn't buy much food um their day job was uh running uh, an organization called nofa northeast organic farming association similar to um like a moses marble seed kind of regional um organization for organic in the northeast so uh yeah grew up as a grew up on a homestead um and we had a farmer's market and csa and mixed animals like i said um but also was actively part of the organic movement going to conferences and my parents helped write you know helped organize the conferences and write the organic standards and and um write the newspaper for the organization and stuff like that so i definitely grew up in the movement um Mm. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> sure. then began, began to make my way, uh, as, as one does through life. But, uh, that's, that's, that's where, that's where I started like, in, the, in the culture, I think. Sure. So grew up on a homestead and you said your folks actually helped to write the organic standards. Would that have been the national organic standards or like, um, that's interesting to me. Back in the eighties, seventies and eighties, uh, before the government had taken it over, it was a grassroots movement and there mm-hmm. were local organizations in upper midwest and the west coast and northeast and wherever that were sort of <clears throat> coalescing and 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 creating standards so um yeah they my father was on the certification committee for the massachusetts um state organization and i think it was 86 when they released their first standards um mm-hmm. uh, other states had done it, had done it earlier um it was 1990 when the government came in and um said we're going to take it over and it was not until 2000 um that they ended up actually formally having an approved standard maybe 2002 so okay wow yeah 12 12 years later so took them some took some some time they 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 tried to uh, they tried to try to put um, gmos and sewage sludge and uh, irradiation in Mm. and the movement said absolutely not not over (laughs) over our dead bodies Right, massive, massive, massive national like letter writing campaign, and they they had to they had to back down. It was quite exciting. Okay, so growing up in homestead, you had exposure to all things horticulture and livestock, and you know, it, you know, interacting with the natural systems. And now you're doing work globally, so there's 
pretty neat thread coming from growing up the way you did to what you're doing now. So after like your growing up years, did you go attend some formal education along those lines to, to continue or yeah, how did you transition from the homestead to to more doing what you're doing now? Well, I think, yeah, I, I mean, I went to UMass. Uh, I I finally got a degree in history. I started off in music. I thought I was a liberal arts major, studied all kinds of different things, uh, philosophy and sociology and organic chemistry and evolutionary biology and 20th century physics or whatever, you know, <laughs> whatever I felt like. I thought I was like, I'm a liberal arts major. I can study whatever I want. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, in the, inter- I mean, somewhere after my freshman year, I worked on a uh, old Solholtz, um homestead in uh, in Siberia for three months, and then somewhere after my sophomore year, I woofed in small farms in Guatemala and Honduras, Nicaragua. I, uh, you know, herded sheep with the Navajo for one winter. I spent some time on, and um, you know, fields in South India where people were committing suicide from, you know, eating their poison because of genetically modified cotton. I. I, 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 I yeah, I traveled the world. Um, I worked on the farm basically in the summertime to make money, and I would save it up and travel the world in the winter and do interesting things. Um, but uh, yeah, when I, I mean, it's when I got married and realized that I had basically not developed a career. Um, and the only thing I was able to do to make money was farm, and I actually wasn't that kind of a farmer. Is when I said maybe <laughs> I should uh, time to get serious and um, sure. And uh, yeah, started you know I, I think realizing that, that 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 sick plants are not healthy plants, and you know pest pressure, disease pressure are symptoms of of sickness. Mm-hmm. I sort of started to look outside of the organic um, community, and I found the Acres USA world that Charles Walters had curated for at that point, mm-hmm. you know, thirty five years or something, um, and. You know, was exposed to all the insights from from permaculture and agroecology and biodynamics and you know conventional ag and the quantum perspective, all kinds of different things, um, microbiology, remineralization, and so. But started started basically shifting practices. Then this was like two thousand five, two thousand six, and uh, pretty immediately diseases were gone, pests were gone, yield was up, cost of production was down. I was making a living working part time instead of not making a living working time and a half. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I started effectively started giving workshops because my parents ran NOFA and I could, you know, get a slot at the conference to speak. And I was like, I don't know what's exactly what's going on here, but something really important. <laughs> because right. I I farmed all my life and I know a lot of people who do and I know everybody has a hard time making a living and we just assume pests are happen and diseases happen and and you know and I was exposed to the concept of bricks and this, you know, the idea that there is significant nutrient variation in food that connects to soil health and plant health and human health and farm viability. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it was sort of the the combined, you know, insight from these communities, you know, integrated into my experience as a farmer um, is what this two-day course is. I call it principles of biological systems. And the basic idea is that, um, you know, nature's been <laughs> working quite successfully with plants to grow without fertilizer and tillage and all kinds of effort and inputs uh, for hundreds of millions of years. And in fact, indigenous indigenous communities, you know, globally have been doing it for tens of thousands of years, working with nature to be 
produce lots of food among other things. And so it's really about how nature evolved the system to work and how we can, you know, effectively do less, but be more strategic and increase yield and, and, and quality and soil health and profitability, et cetera. So yeah, that's, 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 uh, that's basically what the course is and where it comes from. Excellent. So it was shortly after that 2005, 2006, that you started the Bionutrient Food Association. So talk to us about that, what led you to form that, and then the education and the work that you do through your nonprofit. Yeah, we started the BFA in 2010. I, I was working for a group called Remineralize the Earth prior to that. And um, so I was doing that. I started the courses. Um, and uh, yeah, we started the BFA in 2010 because there seemed to be a lot of interest in the topic and the content. And, you know, I was, because I grew up in the nonprofit sort of community, I just assumed that there would be a community talking about nutrition and nutrient levels and food and things like that. And I didn't see one. I saw the permaculturalists talking about their techniques and philosophy and practice and the biodynamic community had their, had their sort of spin on things and organic has its, its, its thing. And, you know, there was local and there was um, sustainable and um, IPM, but I didn't see any community focusing on the question of how good is the food. Right. The idea was basically like there's a direct connection between soil health, plant health <laughs> and human health, right? animal health. And it doesn't matter what you call yourself or what practices you do or do not engage in what matters is how healthy is your soil and how healthy right. are your plants and it seemed to me like that was an obvious thing that i couldn't find anybody else talking about and so yeah that's why we started the bfa was to you know our formally our mission is to increase quality in the food supply to create a reality where food is more nutritious next year than it is this year um, but focusing on the the quality of the food not the label not the you know, the founding myth or, or things like that. Sure. More of an outcomes based outlook rather than check the box. This is the practices we do to get the label, get the certification, right? Precisely fit into the yeah. corporate box, uh, marketing certification, bureaucracy, et cetera. Right. Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating because there's so many programs, you know, that are exactly a check the box or do this practice, get the money, get the payment. And, we need to look a little further and verify, you know, what's the outcome? What are we actually producing? You know, and is it, is it better than what is success? What is the 80th percentile? What is the fourth right. percentile? Like how good of a job are we doing? You know, maybe you care about the environment and the climate and you think maybe agriculture could have a positive effect. Like how positive, how fast, you know, are you just, right. are you just getting the label or are you actually systemically doing something? Uh, yeah. And how, and how about human health and chronic disease and, you know, right. How good are your carrots, <laughs> actually? <laughs> Do you want to know? Right. I don't think yeah. most people actually want to know how good their carrots are because <laughs> we've tested a lot and most of them aren't that good. Um, yeah. yeah. No, it's a bit of a how many clothes is the emperor wearing Wearing conversation. People agree. But yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That's fascinating. Okay. So we were just talking about how you differentiate your the BFA, the Bionutrient Food Association, and you're looking at outcomes. So your two-day workshop that you mentioned, the principles of biological systems, how would you differentiate your workshop, your class with a lot of the other soil health 
trainings that are offered out there today. It's becoming more and more of a crowded marketplace, if I can use that term, as far as education and you know workshops. So how would you say yours stands out and how is it different than a lot of, a lot of what else out there? Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, Maybe that's a little bit of a loaded question. No, right? no I can, I'll start. I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm not quite sure where to start. I think, uh, I think foundationally, you know, it's, 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 a, I call it my two day stand up show. There's, it's a whiteboard, a blackboard, you know, people get a handout and it's, it's Q and a it's engaged conversation. We're, we're walking through the growing season. We're talking about, okay, it's fall. What are the principles that, you know, are good to know now? And what are some techniques that can affect systemic benefit? We're really focusing on the living system and understanding how it works and what the limiting and what limiting factors are and how to address them, you know, pulling from all the different suites of knowledge, the, you know, the, the mineral perspective, the biological perspective, the, the chemical, the organic, um, foliar sprays, uh, inoculations. Um, I have no problem talking about topics more esoteric and and quantum and intention and structuring water. And, you know, we talk about human health and cultural revitalization and movement strategy. It's, you know, it's, it's, I, I say we start with photosynthesis and end with consciousness. It's, it uh, there are some basic slides that I try to make sure I cover the points on, but it really is much more interactive. And we go, I start, you know, start the start the start the, the presentation with, okay, bring your questions. Let's put them, write them all down here on the board, and let's make sure they're addressed by the end of the weekend. And it's you know, I you know, it's it's most fun when there's people that have experience and knowledge and serious questions, and we can actually have a a, a deeper strategic sort of understanding and and sort of um, teasing out what's going on and why process. I find that in many cases, what nature needs to function is so simple that we have overlooked it or we do some, some really silly things that are inhibiting it. And, you know, in many cases, it's like something like sufficient air in your soil is your limiting factor. And mm-hmm. it doesn't require a lot of purchasing of things to address that. But if you can understand it and and create a, a reality where that's ameliorated, you know, a bunch of other things kick into gear. I mean, thinking about how, you know, indigenous communities, Native Americans, you know, didn't have beasts of burden. They didn't have plows. They didn't have all these fertilizers and insecticides and foliar sprays. And and they understood, but they understood how more well how nature works and were able to get profound vitality from their landscape, you know, production with with very limited effort. And so... Really, it's it's. I think it's more of a it's more of a philosophical. It's lots of practical details, but it's really you know framed around a philosophical framework of how does how did nature evolve things to work, and mm. how can we work with nature, understanding how she's speaking and what her needs are, and I mean it's it's oftentimes so intuitive like. <laughs> Like mm-hmm. microbes need water to drink, you know, like cows and chickens and children do. And if your soil's dry, the microbes are dead and plants evolved <laughs> by microbes to feed them. And so the microbes die, the plants stop being fed. And that's when you start to get sickness and disease. So, you know, right. watering the plant, you're keeping the microbes, you know, alive by maintaining moisture in the soil. And there's some really simple things. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, and I've been doing it for 15 years. So I've developed a lot of nice little anecdotes and um mm-hmm. 
sort of rants. So expect to be kept on the on your on the edge of your seat. <laughs> yeah, I'm really looking forward to it for sure. So the the course to me when I when I look on the website and I, you know, as we've discussed as we set this up, it seems to me that no matter what you grow, where you are, or the scale of your farm or ranch, this course will apply to you. Am I correct in saying that? Or is there an audience that this is focused more on? Um, well, it's called Principles of Biological Systems. So again, it's how did nature evolve things to work? And that applies right. for a you know a little potted plant in your living room just as much as it applies to a thousand acre cornfield. Right. It does not matter whether you're growing root crops or leaves or fruits or <laughs> fodder or cows or chicken fodder yeah. for cows or whatever. Exactly. It's 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 about right. like whatever the ecosystem is that you're working in. The more you understand how nature evolved it to work, the better job you can do. Um, right. So I definitely refer more to my experience with you know vegetables and and animals and maybe fruit trees and stuff. I don't have as much experience with grain on scale production, but I have a decent amount of understanding. It usually ends up being people that are a little more broad-minded, in which case, in many times, I'm not just doing one thing. So I would say that that sort of, can we say homesteading culture mindset, I think is probably like that. That's generally the, 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 like the, the dominant constituency, but there's people that aren't necessarily, you know, doing a lot. There may be, there may be chefs or, or activists or nutritionists or all kinds of people, researchers. Um, educators yeah 100 that are present yeah you know and as the host i sometimes have to ask the uh the dumb question in the in the room but yeah I, the title of the workshops it's pretty obvious that's biological systems but i know that some people listening to this may may wonder you know who it who it fits and who should come so i yeah but no anything basically if you're growing something it's you're going to learn something from this workshop Hopefully. for sure <laughs> yeah so what do you find that attendees who come to the two-day workshop what do they leave with a better understanding out what are they excited about when they go back to their farms what yeah what do they leave the room with an understanding of and how are they going to implement that i'm just thinking of this lady who uh the course i gave in montana i'm not sure it was about a year ago or so and i think her words come to mind uh something about the like realization that it's all life around us everywhere is alive and conscious and sentient and like it's not inanimate right we're not dealing with a factory floor here we're dealing with we're literally dealing with life and what that means is actually quite a, quite profound and just that level of eyes open you know sensitive a feeling um i don't know just more of a of, of a respect and a, a sacredness of of the work and and how you're engaging the land that that's sort of a mindset i think yeah i think observation is one of the most powerful tools we have as um, managers or if that's yeah stewards of our our landscapes and so i think what you're kind of getting at is that observation and being in tune and intuitive with what's going on around you in your landscape being present, being present and observing at all kinds of different levels yes <laughs> Right. From the from the very, you know, logistical, you know, numerical instrument to your subtle, subtle, you know, nature speaking to you, voices and you're <laughs> coming to you or whatever. Everything. Sure. To the shape of yeah. belief, to the to the growth habit of the plant. Right. To be able to be just to see that, you know, at, you, you know what a, a you know 
whatever a teenager going through puberty is like, you know, you think about your tomato plant flowering and setting its first fruit. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. at the same point in its life cycle and it's, you know, it's struggling in its various ways and in kindergarten, you know, is being transplanted, right? Mm-hmm. Plants have life cycles that they go through their life cycle. That <laughs> germination is birth. You need your collateral birth. You need your, you need your uh, <laughs> inoculants on the seed. You know, the more you understand that these are living beings going through a life cycle, mm-hmm. we do engage um, in all kinds of different ways. The, um, yeah, it just, it just, um, it actually helps. It, it helps do a better job and it makes the, makes the process more enjoyable, I think. Right. What are some results that you've had attendees or like impacts on their farm? Are you finding that people come and they're just totally redoing the whole way they approach their farm plan or their cropping plan or yeah. What are you finding attendees are going home and like writing back saying, Hey, this completely changed fill in the blank. So I'm just curious, some of the testimonials you've heard from people like that. Yeah. Well, obviously it's different people do different things. I, I always suggest don't take my word for anything, experiment in a corner and, and if it works, then you can do it in a larger space. Certainly people get amazingly positive results from simply inoculating their seed, you know, doing side-by-side trials with inoculation. They're like, (laughs) that's really, really helpful. Um, Mineral balancing um, is another one of those massive ones. I mean, keeping the soil covered, uh, maintaining hydration. In many cases, it's, it's, it's quite rudimentary things that they're doing, but once they actually understand why and how important it is and they start to do it, they're like, Oh my God, keeping my soil covered prevented all these other four bad things from happening during the summer. <laughs> and so spacing, um, you know, giving, you know, selecting seedlings based on now their vigor and, and keeping their roots from being inhibited, you know, the whole SRI conversation. Yeah. I would say it, it, it's a full spectrum. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, you're constantly learning and it's, it's exciting. You know, it's like, most people are are in the practice of having a garden or farming or whatever because they like doing it. And and uh yeah, it's sort of the more you understand, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, the more fun it becomes. Uh, you know, the more sure. your 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 actions can be and uh yeah, more successful. Yeah, we've here in Minnesota, we have experienced about be our third consecutive year of drought. So you mentioned earlier, just, you know, keeping the soil covered, which is, you know, armor, one of the principles of soil health that we're always teaching and talking about. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious because, you know, even now, like droughts on my mind, it's December and we've got maybe an inch of snow on the ground here, but, you know, you drive up and down the roads, the gravel roads, and there's dust flying and it's dry. It's even though it's December, um, we're still in a drought on the drought monitor. And I think if we don't get a lot more snowfall this, this winter, we're going to be looking at a pretty, you know, bleak out outlook for next year, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious from that perspective for a lot of our farmers who've been dealing with drought or frustrated, you know, just what you mentioned about keeping the soil covered and keeping hydration. What are some, what are some possible drought strategies that you're going to be talking about in the two days that people could be picking up from you? Well, there's a few of them. I mean, keeping, keeping the soil covered and alive, you know, obviously when the soil is bare, and the wind blows, um, it wicks out the water at a remarkably rapid rate. Um, right. You'll see if you have an undergrowth of like, you know, white clover under your broccoli or or your corn in the summertime <clears throat> in August, it hasn't rained for, you know, whatever, a month. And you'll see that the soil will be moist where those plants have been collecting dew 
in the morning in a way that's not on the bare soil. Have you ever noticed that? You know, yes. one bed is one bed's got little baby galasogas or any kind of weeds on it, another bed's bare, and it's in the middle of a drought, and you like go out there in the morning and that <laughs> bed with the weeds on it doesn't have moist soil. Um mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's really something to that. And depending on what kind of things you're growing, you know, having the deep rooted subsoil compaction issues uh, addressed, you know, depending, keeping your water table high is the best thing you can do. So from the permaculture perspective, if you've got lay on your land, you know, I would be digging, digging ponds in and stockpiling water in, in, in right. ponds as high in the landscape as possible systemically. I'd do that on my farm. And uh, yeah, I mean, the higher the water table is, then the, I mean, and there's this thing called the, the called the, uh, the um, tidal force, right? We know about the tides that rise mm-hmm. water twice a day on the oceans, right? Like that also happens on land, right? The, the gravity of the sun and the moon are still applicable on land. And actually, if you don't have subsoil compaction, if you have good soil structure, then, and, and you've got a decent water table, then your plants will be watered from below twice a day through the tidal force. Um, in many cases, you'll see the pastures and the forests won't get, you know, the plants won't start to wilt until long after the fields have. And it's because they don't have subsoil compaction and they're being fed watered from below when you're, when your fields that have, you know, the plow pan, um, that's, you got that, that, that level of, of tightness mm-hmm. in the plow pan and you, and you can't get that, that breathing effect watering effect mm-hmm. um so um depending on scale depending on historical dynamic you know stockpiling water um high in the land as much as possible keeping it covered keeping it alive and uh, making sure you get rid of those those uh subsoil compaction issues would be three okay excellent but systemically the more you have bare ground in your bioregion the more you're going to have the you know the heat dome effect and um you know Green things actually do affect, do create weather. <laughs> right. And uh, absolutely. And when you're in an environment where everybody else is tilling in the fall and keeping things bare for six months of the year, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and they've got, you know, it's powder dirt, even when there is stuff in the field that really has a negative effect on your, on your cloud formation. And, um, and these are sort of bioregional issues that, that you can't right. totally address by yourself. Yeah, I think when we think about the water cycle, we tend to think really big picture water cycle, but water cycle can be pretty small picture, yeah. like your your several county area that you're in. <laughs> and I don't think we typically think like that, but uh, at least previously, I, I know I've been I've thought that way. So yeah, water cycle can be a lot smaller scale than you know just the massive water cycle we think about on the planet. Yeah. So yeah, um, excellent. So. You had a comment earlier about you know indigenous culture and the practices they use to grow food and how they've been doing a lot of what you were you're talking about in this workshop. So this may get a little more philosophical of a question, but why do you think we have such a big disconnect between what you teach and a lot of what we've been seeing for you know thousands of years used to grow food and what we see on majority of our agricultural landscape today? Like why do we have this massive disconnect? Uh, between Western agriculture and you know what used to be, yeah. <laughs> what's the uh, what's the nature of human nature? Are we good or are we bad? I think you know uh, what was the fall of man. Um, 
Yeah, I said it might get philosophical. I just like, <laughs> no, I, so, I mean, I can, I can, I can, I can throw a few thoughts back at you on that topic. But I mean, well, you know, the landscape here in Minnesota. I don't know how many times you've been to Minnesota. It's you know, decent few, decent few. Yeah, a predominantly you know pretty big ag, yeah. like a, like you said earlier, a lot of open soil right now, and we're making changes. But you know, a lot of times you like to see it go faster. So I'm just curious, like. And I had a call earlier, sorry, I'm going to get a little off here, but I had a call earlier and what we were talking about is like budgets for, you know, showcasing the, um, the power of livestock integration on cropland. You know, what, what do we need to have as a budget or what can we showcase to like show the power for, you know, your typical farmer, like why we should get livestock back on the, on the land. And so anyhow, it just, it, it comes back to profitability. Unfortunately, a lot of times you have to show the numbers, um, uh, for, so yeah. anyhow, no, that's great. I'm kind of going off, I'm going off into a tangent here, but I'm just like, I just had this call earlier. So it's got me thinking about this. And then you made that comment. I was like, so what's the disconnect? Like, why, why do we sometimes see like, yeah. So I'll let you. I would say there. that if you look back at what the land grant university researchers were doing in the thirties and forties, it was pretty righteous. Um, <clears throat> it's just post-World War II when the chemical companies saw you know, well, they, the armaments industry basically saw an opportunity to make profits selling things to farmers that we right. had the farmers taught about how to use products and buy things as opposed to how to work with nature to, to build resilience. So like you see it in every other, you know, aspect of our society, whether it's <laughs> education or media or politics or uh, anything, you know, health, um, mm -hmm. you know, we don't have we don't have honorable incentives being pushed by the structures that exist. I think, you know, you can only, you can only violate nature so long before you, you die. And um, that's the exciting thing here is we've been, we've been pushing it pretty hard and, and it's becoming more and more difficult to, to succeed without realigning with nature. And so, right. you know, maybe we had to go through this as a evolutionary process as a, as a species, you know, to go from, uh, you know, a, a much more intuitive way of dealing with nature to being empowered with science and technology to finding the high ground, maybe right. part of our evolutionary process. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I, I think it's, I, I mean, I, I say it a bit tongue in cheek, but, you know, bring on the cataclysm, you know, bring on the, the, the sicker we get, the more we're going to pay attention to our food, the more, you know, out of balance that the environment the climate becomes, the more we're going to be paying attention to, to addressing that. And so, you know, I think I think with the difficulty comes the opportunity, and right. uh, we're pretty good at that fight or flight mechanism. When things get bad, it's like it's not like we don't know how to do it, right? I mean, we could do it massively if we took I don't know <laughs> the money that's been spent in Ukraine or a tenth of it or something, you know, and strategically right. implemented it on North America. Um, things could be dramatically better next year, right? It's not like it's a you know ten, twenty, fifty year process. Like we we know how to really systemically benefit things. It's just a question of who profits. And I think in many cases, the education is coming from having a, 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 a an economic incentive um, if you track mm -hmm. it down. And so, you know, right. my general suggestion is we basically have everything we need in nature, locally available, free in many cases, or quite inexpensive. Um, the reason you don't get taught about it is because not too many people have an interest in teaching you about that. Most people are trying to teach you something actually have a, have a something they're selling. Um, right. Which is, yep. yeah. So, yeah. 
I have a post-it note above my desk here. It's a quote from Dr. Alan Williams. It says, nature will humble, humble you. And if you refuse to be humbled, nature will defeat you. And what you, <laughs> you know, nicely said <laughs> what you just, yeah. So what you just said earlier, it's just like, um, you can only fight nature for so long before she will win. Um, and I think, yeah. So the you get until you become dead, right? I mean, <laughs> you can either align with nature or become dead. You got two choices. It's a, <laughs> and in my, in my much shorter farming career than yours has been, I have seen that because I'd like to think I'm a pretty intuitive farmer and, and, you know, being out in landscape and just being in tune with what's going on. But I've seen that time and time again, where we're, we're putting, you know, inputs into something or we're fighting something with fossil fuels or whatever, whatever it is we're trying to fix. And instead of trying to go out there and just kill everything or whatever, you just work with nature and all of a sudden your farming is so much more fun and more profitable most of the time. Yeah. You know, so it's just like, Oh, everything just clicks together. So stop fighting nature. (laughs) And it might not be totally, you know, clean, bare soil, everything straight lines, monoculture. Right. It'll probably be a lot more fun and (laughs) a lot less stress. And right. You know, I mean, you don't need to earn as much if you, if you're buying less, right. If you have, if you're, if you're, if you're, if your costs are lower, your income can be, it doesn't need to be as high for you to be doing better. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. um, Yeah. I mean, I don't, know who the quote can be attributed to, but whoever someone said, you know, the easiest way to make a dollar is save a dollar. And, you know, you know, it's pretty simple, you know, wisdom there, but you know, it's so true in the farming world is sometimes when you can't control markets, if, if you're in a marketing situation where you can't control it and you can't control government, you can't control the weather, right? The three things we like to complain about as farmers, but the things we can control are our costs. And if we learn to work with nature and do what you're talking about in this this workshop, we're going to be just so much more successful. Well, nature's going to have her extremes. And the healthier your soil is, the healthier your ecosystem is, the more well it's going to deal with extremes. Um, you have the, the subsidy system, which basically is putting a totally unfair finger on the scale. But mm-hmm. what we're trying to do with nutrient density and all that research is, you know, help producers who are doing a better job get premiums. I was just talking to a guy a couple of weeks ago. He's working with some uh, grain producers in uh, Montana, I think. He's an agronomist. And he said his wheat producers are getting a 30% premium and his barley producers are getting a 50% premium based on test weight. Based on the fact that if you have better test weight, you know, the <laughs> and you've got your own your own silo, and you can and you, I mean, we really can help you know, farmers not not have to sell into the commodity system because who wants to do that? Right. If you're doing a better job, you want to get paid for doing a better job, don't you? I mean, absolutely. Should they get all the junk? But why throw your grain in with everybody else's and have it all just mixed up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I uh, was actually a local farmer here well, a couple hours south of me here um, who has been on a soil health journey for um, 20 plus years now or so. And he's, uh, I, I saw him a couple months ago and he said, yeah, I'm getting like $5 over Chicago board for my soybeans because nice. of my test weights. Nice. You know, that's the kind of thing Which, that, that counts. That counts. That's really funny. Yeah, it, absolutely. And then people talk about, well, you know, where's the money going to come from without, you know, incentives for cover crops and stuff. Well, I can tell you $5 over Chicago board is a pretty good incentive. <laughs> I would think so. <laughs> so that's what we've always said. All this regenerative stuff yeah like, and this and the climate blah 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 and the, this and the that yeah. like how about you just make a better living how about you right. get paid better for the for better quality food and your cost of production is lower you'll make right. way more profit that way than all the carbon credits and all the ecosystem market credits and all that certification and bureaucracy and 
bull- right. money as far as I'm concerned. And not that whatever. It's just like right. we're we're growing food here. Let's let's right. figure out. Well, and and a simpler life with maybe a little less paperwork. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> yeah. So um, absolutely. So. I don't trust big schemes anyways. I'm always, I'm skeptical of big schemes. <laughs> <laughs> Who's behind it? What's their agenda? Right. What's, what's, the, what, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I understand you there. Yeah. <clears throat> so you were talking, you brought up nutrient density a little bit. We we're just talking about test weights and grains. So, and you earlier, you mentioned like testing carrots. So explain a little bit more the process for, you know, determining the bricks, determining the nutrient density of the food. And then you've got some technology you've been developing over the years to help yeah. the average consumer. I'm, If I'm understanding this correctly, this will be yeah. in the hands of the average consumer in the next couple of years to be able to do this themselves. Yeah. So, I mean, so what is nutrient density? I mean, the, the, the concept basically is that if you understand that, you know, some tomatoes taste good and some tomatoes don't, and some carrots taste good and some carrots don't. And, some peaches taste good and some peaches don't. There is nutrient variation in food and not all carrots are uniform. Not all milk is uniform. Not all wheat is uniform, even though, you know, we're led to believe that based on the way governmental labeling dynamics work, you know, the idea is if you're, if you're going to be feeding your child a tomato, you probably would want to feed them one that, you know, tastes better, that they're more likely to eat. And the reason it tastes better is because it's more nutritious because we've evolved these really sophisticated nutrient monitoring devices called noses and tongues to tell us what's good for us and what's not. So like if we can grant the point that there's a nutrient variation in food, wouldn't you like to be able to choose from the five jugs of milk on the shelf, which one was 80 out of a hundred and which from the one that was 60 and the one that was 20 or with carrots or with beef or whatever it is. And BRICS refractometer is like the best tool we've got now for testing that. It correlates with flavor, it correlates with shelf life, it correlates with, you know, plant health and all kinds of other stuff. But it, we can't, you know, A, you have to squish something to get the juice and B, we don't have like hard peer-reviewed, like metabolomics, nutrient data to say this is a, you know, 80th percentile, this is 20th percentile. So we've been working uh, with, at the BFA, uh, we founded the Bionutrient Institute to do this work, basically having people send in thousands of samples of all kinds of different crops and then also the soil they grew in and also the management data. And so we can begin to tease out like how big is the variation and what caused it. And, and then we can, uh, you know, begin calibrating these handheld meters. So yeah, the idea basically is, and I would say, I don't know how many years it'll be till it's on your smartphone, but I think that's the end game is it's one of the cameras in a smartphone. Um, Mm. And you literally can flash a light at the carrot on the shelf and it'll, read the nutrients in the carrot through something called spectroscopy not a qr code it's not a it's not you know something on the package we're actually reading the nutrient level in the carrot or in the lettuce or in the tomato if we can read what you know stars 10 million light years away are made up of by taking a picture of the light coming off of them which is which we can it's called spectroscopy then there's no reason we can't take a picture of the light coming off of a carrot and see what it's made up of, right? It's 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 entirely technically possible, and we've effectively proven it. And we've actually built a few hundred of these meters and calibrated them to some rudimentary degree and shipped them around the world. And we've you know created that proof of concept, um, handheld consumer priced ray gun, basically nutrient monitoring ray gun. You know, flash the light at the carrot and get a reading off of it. Um, and uh, 
And now it's, you know, it's not just a question of, you know, the variation in zinc is eight to one in carrots or in iron is 10 to one in spinach or polyphenols is 40 to one in carrots. Like the variations are large. Okay, great. That's what we can calibrate for right now. But the real question is what is, you know, 80 out of a hundred in beef and what is 20 out of a hundred in beef. And that actually is something that there, nobody's figured out yet. And you can't calibrate a meter to flush light a steak and give you a reading one out of, you know, from one to a hundred until you've figured out what 20 and 40 and 60 out of right. are. So that's the research we're doing right now. It's about a million dollars a crop. Mm. Everything's being done open source in the commons and transparent. So it doesn't belong to any company, which means there's no opportunity for an investor to bring in money to support it because it's all being kept in the commons. So um, nice. It uh, it's a bit of a pain in the butt raising the money, but uh, <laughs> we're making good progress and uh, yeah, and it's and and the momentum is building. The momentum is definitely building around this concept. When we started the organization in 2010, it wasn't even a conversation. There was no word nutrient density. We had to we had to created the word and popularized it. And now it's like starting to do something people are talking about. So oh yeah, definitely in the last four or five years, like yeah, everybody's talking about nutrient density in food and yeah. So I, I, I can absolutely. take responsibility for creating the word. I, That's awesome. <laughs> well, appreciate it. That's great, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> um so 18 years ago or something. It's been taking a while, but it's been making progress. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so when you point your smartphone, this is this is me thinking in ten years when I have one of these on my phone. When I point my point my smartphone at the carrot, yeah, what kind of report do you envision popping up my phone? Is it going to be like a a one to a hundred scale, or is it going to give me like a profile of the carrot with all the micro and macronutrients and the levels and all that? Um, How complex is this system going to be? Well, I think you know, as a user, you can choose any of five different different uh, interfaces. You can just get okay sixty eight out of a hundred, or you can get the fourteen different you know elements and compounds that you that you care about that it can test. Um, um, I mean, what is the thought is that there's an overall thing called quality, and it's a it's like it's a sum is greater than the total of the parts, and we're not talking about vitamin C or you know, omega six or or whatever we're talking about, overall integrity, sort of coherence in the overall thing. And so I think that's something I've been trying to steer away from is like, you know, doing all the math and adding the numbers and thinking you understand something, because I think nature's a little more profound than that. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I mean it's a it's a nobody's done it yet. And so we're 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 <laughs> we're giving it a shot and we're doing it openly and we're sharing with everybody how it, how it's how it's going. But um yeah, I think likely based on the level of sophistication of the instrumentation and what the mass production cost is and you know how what you can see in parts per million and what you can see in parts per billion and what you can see in, in percents, it'll be five or eight different biomarkers at different levels and ratios that are connected to this one to a hundred scale. So it's probably not going to be like, you can see 500 things at specific numbers with a phone in your, with a, a camera in your phone. Um, in fact, some of the fanciest labs out there are, have a hard time doing that. They can't even do that yet. And, or it's difficult for them and expensive. So um, let's not make it sound like it's too easy. Um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking conceptually. It's basically it's the year you're one to a hundred, and then maybe there can be some 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 nuances below that. But 
Who knows? I mean, what it's it's not something that we can necessarily control. If Apple's got one in their phone and Samsung has one in their phone and Google has one in their phone, uh, they'll, they'll probably be experimenting with different interfaces. Our hope is right. that they're that they're calibrated to honest data, that we can create that honest data and we can inspire them all to calibrate their meters accordingly. So I'm thinking about the data that you're working on right now and like creating that data bank, right? So we have you can calibrate these things. Yeah. We are so I'm thinking about that. And I'm also thinking at the same time about how we often talk about soil health as a journey. It's not necessarily a destination. Mm-hmm. So that being said, do you feel like as we get better and better at understanding biological systems and soil health and our hopefully our farm soil health continues to improve every year? Do you think that there will be a need to continue evolving that data to like just it'll be better and better nutrient density? Or where do you think, what do you think, what do you think about that like concept? I mean, I, I would hope that it would be an evolving and iterative standard and not sort of, you know, fixed in time and, and stuck. But I, I think we'll probably figure out most of what we, most of the important things. I mean, I, I, it shouldn't take forever to figure out the base, the basic, you know, lay the land, I don't think. Um, okay. And it's really you know i mean if if we're we're able to get what what's what's you know 100 for us now is only 90 in 5 years or 10 years great you know we've helped some people push the envelope but the reality is you know from the basic understandings we have now about 80% of the sample of everything that's on the shelf is between like the 15th and 40th percentile so Almost everything. If you're if your final exam at you know in college was a was a 15, a 20, a 25, a 30, a 35, or a 40, mm-hmm. it would be a failure, right? And 80% of the crops we've assessed are in that range of what's possible. So our hope is like, can we get 80% of the range between the 60th and the 90th percentile? Right. It's not about hitting perfect, it's about helping everybody do better and raise the baseline, which is going to have positive impacts on the soil, on the environment, on farm viability, on human health, on, you know, I would say the farm bill. And, you know, I mean, basically if farmers are not using the products of agribusiness anymore, then because they don't need them, then agribusiness has less money to buy senators with to, you know, direct how the farm bill gets written, I think. You know, we solve the problem by solving the problem, not by saying, please, master in Washington, D.C., will you, you know, grant us a, a boon? <laughs> we, we create backs in the ground with empowered farmers that are making better money that, right. you know, that that build the world we want to see. So, right. You're creating evidence that can't be ignored by policymakers and decision if makers. Consumers, really. If people who buy food understand that, like, the health of their, their bodies themselves and their children can be dramatically affected by not stopping drinking milk or stopping eating meat, just choosing the right milk and the right meat. Mm. I think they will. I think, I think if people are given a choice, like you, you generally have choices, not only in the grocery store, but many people have choices between grocery stores and you've got farmers markets and you've got, you know, CSAs, uh, you know, if, and you've got online, online markets, like there is choice out there. And if people can be, 
made aware of where the better stuff is, my thought is the better stuff will leave the shelves and the worst stuff will save the shelf. And that'll incentivize the entire supply chain to focus on quality instead of volume, which is how it's currently being focused. Um, yeah, right. So. so much. Yeah. There's a lot of truth to that, right? It's yeah. We focus on yield and quantity and we don't necessarily focus on the the quality. And yeah. So we easily could. We easily could. And the more people who do, and the more we establish those pathways of like and stories, like here's another here's another farmer getting a 30% premium. There's another farmer getting a 30% premium. Why aren't you getting a 30% premium? Mm-hmm. You know, oh, because you're using the products of the co-op. Well, you know, <laughs> the cool kids right. are getting 30% premiums. <laughs> That's right. When right. the critical mass of people actually doing that kind of thing, everybody's going to, yeah. they'll flip, right? The farmers want, the, the farmers don't want to use chemicals and do all the stuff that they're doing. In many cases, they know, mm-hmm. they know it's detrimental. They just, they, they're, they're trapped and they're trapped in the right. cases. And so it's the, it's the empowerment of like, how can you shift and, you know, and, and decrease costs and build resiliency and increase economic viability, you know, it's a, it's a process. Yeah, for sure. I've started to realize in the last couple of months, just how much of the issues that we tackle and we work with on a daily basis in agriculture, to me, it started to really boil down to social issues and, you know, obviously there's practices, there's, there's ways of doing things, but I've really started to understand that a lot of what we're dealing with is social constructs, constraints, yeah. and it's, it's you know, the, like we sometimes like to joke, the most compaction on your farm is between your ears, right? So like, how can we, you know, so, and that, that is- That can be pretty bad because some of that dirt is pretty tight. <laughs> you know, and I will put myself in that camp a lot as as well. You know, I have some compaction between my ears as well on a lot of issues. So um I think I a lot of it glad- too. I think we're I think it's called being colonized. I think right. it's called, you know, having our indigenous nature not be supported from multiple generations. And we're and we we literally have been trained in ways to think that are profoundly destructive and perverse. I mean, it, it's a pro- we we are a product of. It's not like our fault per se, you know. It's something that's been building over time. And this, um, sorry to interrupt, but that, yeah, no, no, you're 100 percent right. I just was thinking, and that's not in any way like a, uh, you know, a joke about farmers or anything, because I am one, so I'm including myself in this in this um, in this group. But I I just wonder how much like if we can kind of unlock paradigms and yeah. start to shape new paradigms and new ways of thinking, new mindsets around agriculture. I just wonder if, you know, the early adopters that are already out there doing this stuff, if we will hit that critical mass that you mentioned earlier and we just, you know, we have an explosion. So I've started to really think about, and especially, you know, my my work with sustainable farming associations, like, okay, if social issues and, you know, mindset are key to unlocking some of the change that we need to see in agriculture. How do we start addressing some of that? And I don't have the answers. I just, it's been something I've been thinking about. Um, yeah. Because every decision we make on our farm, every practice we implement, we implement on the, on the landscape, it goes through our, our minds, you know, we're thinking about it. We're exactly. shaping the paradigm. So anyhow, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that and I maybe we'll talk to, about it in the workshop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think ideally, as I said at the beginning, this is a philosophy. A lot of it's it's all about it's all about your state of mind. And one of the things people take away most is that like seeing the land in a different way with more reverence and more like, uh, you know, I don't know, 
uh, intuition or attun attunement or something. Um, but uh, yes, I have a lot of thoughts about about you know how we can be um, <clears throat> shifting our mindset culturally, reoccupying the lands, um, reindigenizing, um, you know, building those building those skill sets where we don't need to be stuck earning money for a job to pay bills because we're not able to provide for ourselves. I think a lot of people understand that they're in a hamster wheel and and don't necessarily have a a, a way out. Um, mm -hmm. In many cases, we set, we're we're missing so many skills. We're basically just I think they call it inverse totalitarianism. We're not formally being forced, but we've just been like molded so well that we naturally follow the. <laughs> the way of the yeah. system and so it is a big it's a big it's a big phase shift um but i definitely will be talking about that uh, to the degree people are interested i have a number of thoughts about ways we can practically locally and regionally you know collaborate um and that's part of what bfa does uh, all across the ecosystem awesome yeah awesome well this may be a great point to wrap up the conversation here Dan, any any last minute thoughts, and then how can our listeners reach out to you or BFA if they're interested in learning more about your work and what you do? Well, I'm certainly looking forward to the community. I think you know I have actually a long connection to Minnesota, um, from multiple different ways. I've always thought of it as one of the sort of cultural political hotbeds in the country, um, mm -hmm. and I'm really looking forward to the to who shows up. Uh, <laughs> in many cases, uh, I can't, I don't know how it happens, but some interesting, interesting, uh, <laughs> people come out of the woodwork for my events, uh, very broad-minded, broad-minded people, multifaceted people. So, um, sure. very much looking forward to, to, to the event. It's, I don't think we said it here, but it's the 25th and 6th. What's that? Or Friday? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was going to say it at the end, but yeah, it's uh, principles of biological systems workshop, January 26th and 27th. And Dan, will be the instructor for that. It's going to be in Elk River, yeah. Minnesota at the Oliver Kelly Farm. So um, there's more information on the SFA website under the events tab if you want to find out more and register. So, And and to the end of the question about how people can connect, you know, at the, it, our website is bionutrient.org. And if you go there and give us your email, you'll get our, our newsletter, um, um, which is a nice way to stay in touch and abreast. We have a very well-populated uh, YouTube page with every recording from every conference we've ever hosted. Um, it's a, a, a tons of tons of if anybody's driving tractor or have downtime and looking for something to listen to. Um, it's quite a quite an archive there just uh, on YouTube by the yeah. Food Association. Um, it is. Yep. And uh, yeah, BioNutrientInstitute.org is where we host all of our scientific research um, information on nutrient density. Okay. Yeah. I would suggest checking out Bionutrient um, Food Association website and bionutrient.org for sure. It's There's a wealth of information. The video archive is is fabulous. Lots of good. I mean, Dan, you've been all over the globe really talking about this stuff. So there's some presentations from some of your travels in Europe and really interesting. So I would highly recommend checking that out. And then, yeah, for sure. If you like this conversation and you know, I, there's going to be a lot of good further conversation at the workshop in January. So I'd highly encourage you to sign up for the workshop and get to meet Dan and continue yeah. this conversation there. So beautiful. Excellent. Well, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time today to join, join me here on dirt rich. I really appreciate the conversation, had a lot of fun and I'm looking forward to the workshop in January. 
Me too. Me too. Yep. (laughs) All right. Please check out the show notes for the links to the resources that we mentioned. And as always, feel free to reach out to info at sfa-mn.org with questions or comments on this episode. Check out our website, sfa-mn.org, for more information on us, resources, and upcoming events for you and your farm. We'll look forward to being with you in our next episode. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider supporting us by making a donation or becoming a member at sfa-mn.org. Thanks for listening.